Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the chick that made us who we are. My name is Carrie Donahue and I'm a novelist, a journalist and a farmhouse in the foothills of Tuscany. Joining me is activist and author of Brave, Rose McGowan, to talk about Frances May's 1996 travel book, Under the Tuscan Sun. Hey, Rose. Hey. (laughs) I believe you have a confession to make. (laughs) I have a confession to make. When uh, I was originally, um, when we talked about doing this podcast together, I had picked Jane Eyre as Chicklet, and that was rejected. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. Uh, Let me think of Chicklet. And for some reason, the only thing that came to my mind was Under the Tuscan Sun by Frances Mays, but I realized too late as I was rereading the book to prep for the podcast that in fact I had never read the book (laughs) and had only seen the movie, but somehow the movie drilled into my head that I had read the book. So I'm reading the book. The book is wildly different to the movie. It's really about home restoration in Italy and a lot of food and recipes, and there are no hot Italians men there are are no... There are zero hot people in this book. There are zero hot people in this book. She has a husband already. I was very confused, and um, so I must confess that I found the book to be kind of boring. Um, oh, my God. I hated the book so much. <laughs> I was reading it like, what? There's – what? This, there are no hot Italian men, and there's, there's no, like, like divorce with, you know, the drama. And, yeah, and yeah. that's the magic of movies, you see. And sometimes we recognize that there's a magic of movies. I watch that movie, like, usually once every couple of years when I miss Italy where I grew up. And it's, a, it's one of those things because whenever we talk about books and film adaptations, we're so used to that pat line, which is, you know, oh, God, you know, the, however good you think the film is, the book is so much better. Not so. Not so. <laughs> um, I don't want to be a dick, but I, it was a struggle to get through. <laughs> but, I mean, it is Italy porn and Italy is beautiful. In Tuscany, I imagine they had a huge run of Americans moving there after oh, this yeah. book came out and the movie came out. I'm sure they weren't happy about it. I'm sure. I mean, they sounded very poor from the books, and like the the the, the wages that Frances Mays was uh, paying those Polish workers, probably not much. Which she seems very fine about. She's like, oh, I pay them like fifty liras a day, and they're happy, which is you know a third of the local rate. And I was like, you're a fucking bitch. You know? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. You're like, um, Francis, we need to discuss uh, socioeconomic politics. Let's yeah. talk. But the book, I, I, it was a real uh, struggle to get through. And maybe I'll go back and try cooking someday and yeah. look at the recipes. But it's, it's interesting to me that someone read that and thought, this will make a movie. But no wonder they changed it so radically because otherwise absolutely nothing would happen. She goes to – she shops at the grocery a lot. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do a, a quick um, – I'm putting plot in inverted commas, a brief plot summary. Okay. Um, so the plot is, is that Frances Mays is a university professor um, uh, in – 
in her 40s or 50s in midlife she says and she moves to Tuscany not even moves she just buys a house in Tuscany a summer house a summer house isn't that nice <laughs> which is I'm like relatable not right? at it's all like, it's like the, the stakes are so low it's, <sighs> it's not like she's like abandoning her life to just take a chance on Italy um, no. she's just going she's found a summer home that her and her husband Ed are doing up over a series of summers and they like Italy a lot and that's the whole deal. And many <laughs> many of you um, will remember the, um, you know, it came out in 1996. It was instantly a New York Times bestseller. It stayed on the bestseller list for two years. What? And then that, I guess that's why it was made into a movie with Diane Lane, because I guess it's easier to piggyback off a book's legacy than it is to just write a, an original story about a woman in Italy. Um, well, she does only go to the grocery store an awful lot or, you know, so to be fair... Sometimes movies do work their magic. They do. And it, that one worked such magic, I had thought I had read the book. So, uh, no. That's fantastic. Um, okay, so you grew up in Tuscany. I did. And um, I'd like to know what your sort of memories are and how they come across in both the film and the book or whether those are different. or They did a really good job in the movie mm. of showing Tuscany. And the book certainly describes Tuscany well and its idiosyncrasies and um, the kind of Italian customs and superstitions and things like that. Uh, but it's it's really food porn and, and Italy porn, I would say. But my memories of Italy are, are, yes, like the beautiful geraniums on the porch, the Tuscan sun, which is true. The light there is extraordinary. And you can see why so many painters, you know, it's funny, a lot of um, Italian Renaissance painters, people think of it as kind of heightened, but when you're there, it really looks kind of like what they are. The light is really specific to Florence especially. And, I mean, my memories are just, you know, fields of olive trees and uh, just gorgeous, the hillsides. It, the book does a really good job of describing it because that's really all that she does. Yeah, I mean, for the, she, she does have one job and she does do that job. <laughs> she does do that job. Go, Francis. So She must be so rich. Oh my god! She like oh my have, god. have you looked at her bibliography? It's no. just like um, different long book titles with the word Tuscan in. It's like oh, Tus- Tuscan dinners with my husband, a summer in Tuscany, winter time in Tuscany. My reflections further on Tuscany. It's Don't incredible. you want my life? Buy it, and then I'll pay people fifty lira to do the work at my house. Right. <laughs> so like. What's interesting is is that it's it's it bu- it's billed as like a memoir come travel book, um, but really her emotional distance in the book is huge. Like I, there, I there's nothing personal really. Though. No, we, I, I don't know what, how she feels about her husband other than she likes having lunch with him, which I guess you know is something. <laughs> That's something they like having food together. Um, he's tall. She's he's six foot two. She's five foot four. I got that from the book, so that was a personal nugget. So um, he, um, he was working on um, sanding the ceilings while she was working on the floors. Fascinating. Fascinating. Like, the thing is, in certain memoirs, in certain relationships, if that became a memoir, like a, it could a, be fascinating. A, a metaphor for something else or some bigger dynamic, yeah. but you never get that. It's just like, and, and then we swept up the sawdust and went outside and had a grape. <laughs> it, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and then the Italians were bad with plumbing and et cetera, et cetera. What's really funny about it is just kind of how 1% she comes off. Totally. But it's not funny, I guess. I guess it's just true. And if Frances Mays ever listens to this, I'm sorry for 
I, I don't know what I'm sorry for exactly. I read your book and, and I bought it. So, yeah, so, so you, I you've got my money. If you've got my money, I can say whatever I want. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> um, it, no, it is, um, it's not just 1%. And it's weird because, like, she does say throughout, because she's a university professor and she's had a couple of books. But she tells you out. nothing about her life. Like, there's no, I mean, maybe that's a hat trick. You know, my book was very personally revealing. Mm-hmm. And, um, whatever chiclet actually is, because I don't think we use that term as much in America. Mm-hmm. And if it is, it's used in a derogatory way. Yeah. It's, it's used in, I don't, is it derogatory here? So you're well, owning yes. it? Well, that, that, yes. That, so that was sort of the idea behind this podcast. So I've been, um, I came out with my novel last year, and it is a lot about sort of um, women's relationships with um, the men they work with, with their friendships, how those things interlap. And I had lots of people asking me, oh, is it chiclet in this kind of shameful way? Because um, here it's associated with, you know, oh, dizzy woman working in the city, finds a boyfriend, then there's a problem. Something Bridget happens. Jones. Very Bridget, everything, yeah. But Bridget Jones has like a kind of... Um, Although I like Bridget Jones. Everyone does. But yeah. but there are, the weird thing about Bridget Jones is that like one of the main reasons that Bridget Jones is as respected as it is is because the writer, Helen Fielding, was a very respected journalist before. So everyone was like, oh, if this important journalist is doing it, it must be satire. Whereas if you are, I don't know if you come from a journalism background, Mm -hmm. but if you don't have that journalism background, then they feel free to slag you off for writing chiclet. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They they basically, they don't, there are lots of people who did the Bridget Jones thing before and after just as well and sometimes better. But because these were women coming from a kind of a very cozy pink covers and, you know, it's it's in the supermarket and it's five ninety nine, and women pick it up with the pasta and they read it in the bath. That cleverness is completely sidelined and it really pisses me off. It's super sexist. Yeah, totally. And I like that you own what it is. I like that, you know, I like that you own chiclet. And although um, my book is not what would be categorized no. as chick lit. I think, well, I'm a chick and it is literary. So yeah. maybe I qualify. And, um, you know, my book is, is it's a journey and it's about getting brave. And I think that could, I mean, it's a human lit, let's say, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you haven't read my book because you didn't get a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm certainly sorry. Yeah. This, this was all arranged quite last minute it's and uh, I was trying to read this book that it was very hard to get through. But <laughs> I appreciate that because I found it very hard to get through under the Tuscan sun as well. And I thought <laughs> I really wish I had made the choice and just like guffed on the book and, and read yours instead. I think I think mine would have been more gripping. I know it is. More I, gripping. Oh, yeah. Most people read it kind of in one or two days, um, not because it's written lazily or anything like that or or in an easy fashion because I do consider myself, you know, I I was a good actress, but I think I'm a pretty great writer. I can say that with some some self amount of uh, self-knowledge. Writing for me was always, I I speak, you know, I I think I'm fairly well-spoken. I don't know. I curse a lot. But I, I get my thoughts out a lot more concisely yeah. in the written form. What I find really interesting is both acting and writing are both jobs that A, come from very similar places. They come from the urge to storytell, right? Correct. And B, there are jobs that everybody thinks they can do and it's quite hard Oh, God. To good prove. luck writing. Good <laughs> right? luck, people. I mean, and if you are a writer, good luck to you because it's hard. I mean, yeah. what is it Hemingway said? Writing is easy. You sit at the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> well, yeah, I can imagine your experience writing Brave was... Literally that. I mean, we're talking about Frances yeah. Mays, who, like, gives nothing of her personal life away, no. apart from, like, how much she loves grapes. 
And then there's a different kind of memoir that she you're... also likes cherries. <laughs> she also likes cherries and wines. Yeah, green and, olives are nice. And green olives are. It's like literally the food writing. It's I don't even think it's particularly good food writing because it's just long lists of like and I recipes. Had, yeah, and recipes, which to me, I I didn't really feel like. I feel like the best food. I don't know what food writing do you really enjoy? I don't at all. Well. I don't really like food that much. You know, I'm not a foodie. So really? if I could take a pill and not deal with it, I would be perfectly happy. Wow. And that's so – that goes against your entire, like, first 10 years of your life. You well, spend I really. think actually – well, there I love – that's the only place I love food. Really? The rest – I think Italy – see, the thing is I got sent from Italy um, at 10 to America, and that would be, like, the late 80s. And that was uh, a, a huge culture shock and a huge food shock. And yeah. I even in my book, I'm like, dear America, why is your cheese orange? <laughs> and why Milk is that called is an American cheese? Yes. It kind of says it all. That does. It's a real it's, summation it's of a, your cuisine. It's a real summation of cuisine. And I was just – I kind of went on food strike. I was so disgusted by it and I never really – so when I go to Italy, I eat so much and I eat very well. But the rest of the time, it's just to get it over with and live. I'm really interested in those first 10 years that you spent there. Like, what are your what are your memories of that? Well, I grew up in a cult, a world-famous yeah. one called Children of God. And, and what, were, what are the tenets of that cult? Well, that's something I could never quite figure out, to tell you the God's honest truth. No pun intended. But it was <laughs> – my father was the leader of the Italian chapter, and there was a duke um, that was in the group, uh, Duke Cannavaro. And I write about him in the book as well. And so I grew up on ducal estates. So I was in a cult with like probably 100 people. It was a very multinational thing. And it was um, – there was no one mother. Every All the women were called nannies. So it was communal raising of children. Right. So I didn't really forge a strong connection with my mother um, and neither she to me I think. And it, I, I write in my book at two and a half. They would come into my room and say, have you let God into your heart today? And I would say, not today. Try tomorrow. <laughs> And get a slap for that. Um, it's like like a panel in a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't being a jerk. I just thought maybe I'll try again tomorrow, and Jesus will come into my heart because it didn't happen. To, I tried. I felt nothing with my chest opening up. I was a very um, adult child. I was kind of preternaturally disposed to freaking people out. Yeah, and uh, I remember adults looking at me strangely and trying to get away from me as fast as possible. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I talk about that in my book as well. It's strange. I'm kind of a polarizing figure, but it's been like that my whole life. I just make some people uncomfortable. I don't know. It's not my fault. It's just how I've always been. And and I think because I grew up in such a unique way, a lot of it was without mirrors for the first chunk of my life. And so I was raised not as um, a race or a gender. And that I think, you know, I have a lot of people that say, I'm sorry for how you grew up. And I just say, I'm sorry for how you live. <laughs> Yeah. Because I grew up, you know, I mean, essentially imagine a very elegant forest creature that all of a sudden gets sent out into the loud world. But I was raised in a way that placed all uh, emphasis on the mind. I was reading Edgar Allan Poe at age four and putting my yeah. ear to floorboards listening for heartbeats underneath them. Wow. I don't like necessarily advocate that book for a child. but I also read that. That was the first book I ever hid from myself. 
Like I remember, wow. I remember, like I, I like I, I had to the, the the whole idea of the heartbeat. I remember it yeah. so clearly. It was the first scary thing I'd ever read. I think yeah. I don't think I was four. I think I was maybe nine or ten. And I remember hiding it in my parents' room because I, I didn't trust it in my own room. And there were things I didn't understand in it, but I kept reading it like throughout the years till you know you understand a lot more. But the heartbeat, like that one, was it's yeah. pretty traumatic. It's an image that's really hard to get out of your head, right? And to the point now when you're in any room and there's a noise that only you feel like you can hear, you just the, the you thump, get you pull your yourself you all over again. yourself all over again man. <laughs> exactly you exactly. get pulled so you were saying that you you um heard me on the Brady Sinellis yeah, podcast man like you really need to pursue podcasting as a as a thing i think um First of all, because you just have a lot to say, and second of all, because you're so damn good at it. I mean, I was I was aware of you because the way that most people are aware of you, I imagine, which is Charmed and Jawbreaker, and yeah. I I really thought they were cool, but you know, wasn't thinking about you a lot on the day to day. And then you appeared on the Brighton. What you weren't thinking of me on the day to day? I'm sorry, Rose. I think what? I think about you constantly now. Well, you should. <laughs> I'll think about you even more after today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I remember hearing you on the Brighton Sinatra's podcast, and at the, at the time I was living with my best friend who. Who's a gay guy and um hi Ryan, he's a big Hi Ryan. Hi Ryan. And um I, I listened was listening to it and I was like, you have to listen to this. Do you remember Rose McGowan? Do you remember? like and she was like, Yeah, of course I remember Rose McGowan. And um this there's a bit that you say, I'm really angry at the gay community right now. Because I feel like I have been shaking my ass on pride floats and doing my best for this community for a long time. And it's time for them to start paying us back. And he had never heard that ideology before. And it clicked with him. And the next day, he signed up for like a charity that like coaches men out of toxic masculinity. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. I boots on the ground change. That's incredible, actually. Go, Ryan. Yeah, I got a lot of flack for what I said there. And I think it's okay to be upset with people. Like, it doesn't mean that I'm, believe it, you know, anti-gay or anything like that. I think for me, it was like, these are my brothers. This is how I grew up. Um, When I was 13, I was a runaway and taken in by two trans women and a stripper named Tina. (laughs) I write about that in my book, too. Um, And... If you ever think of writing a sitcom, two trans women and a stripper named oh, Tina. Yeah, that's please. that is one with a with a homeless teenager, a homeless goth teenager. I was kind of like a moth. I was like a mod goth cross. I would say. I what is that? Is that just like a really good suit and white makeup? It was like a white boy's button down shirt, a black skinny tie, a black mini skirt with black tights and combat boots. Oh, cool! With red red lips and jet black hair. A look. Jet, it was a look. Yeah, I had strong looks. I made a lot more of an effort back in the day, uh, but I grew up. In the gay community. I mean, that was my community. These were my people. And I think it's okay to to call out your family sometimes on what you see. And and I also said gay men can be a lot more sexist than straight men. But I also think women can be more sexist than everybody. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I had a, I mean, I had a very suburban <laughs> upbringing, but I had a similar thing. Um, where I felt very, I felt all the art that I love and all the things that call to me now were introduced to me by older gay men who were looking after me because I was just this kind of wayward teen who didn't really know who to look up to, and it was all gay men who sort of and queer people in general who watched me through that. And it's been it was great, but then I, I remember this sort of whole dialogue around like fag hags started coming up and like the right. sad, desperate straight girl who hangs out with gay dudes, yeah, and being definitely. so crestfallen by that idea. And I got I got a lot of people that were like, well, you're not fat, so you're not a fag hag. I mean, it was just so disgusting. That's gross. It's really gross. It's really upset. And, and you know, and the thing is, is like just because you're gay doesn't mean you weren't raised as a man. 
So why yeah. wouldn't you be suffering from toxic masculinity that you need to unpack, you know? I mean, I think everybody – one of the things I do is write down a list of um, my beliefs, my yeah. core beliefs. And, and then even other ones that have kind of – and I try to figure out um, what has been implanted in me by society and what are mine. Right. And I think it would behoove people, uh, gay or straight, to to do that and figure out what are societally implanted ideas. What are your ideas on women? What are your ideas on children? What are your ideas on old people? What are your ideas on, you know, fat people? What are your ideas on whatever it is? But like just figure out what's yours and, and, and take what you want and leave the rest. But I think it's really important to unpack how, you know, like fag hag, it's like it's super derogatory. And why can't that woman just be your friend? Yeah. What if she feels safer in your, for me, I felt safer in that community because they weren't after me sexually. And I was a very beautiful young woman and, and I was a target. Yeah. And reciprocally, straight women help gay men. Like we we tend to be the sort of underground railroad for them when they have come, we are their girlfriends. We are, you know what I mean? It's like, it's such a beautiful relationship and it sucks to have it sort of so denigrated, denigrated, which is weird, which brings me actually back to Under the Duskin Sun in the movie, who looks after her? It's her lesbian friend. Her lesbian friend and then the queer um, bus group. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> they, they, they are the catalyst for her changing her life. Yeah. That is definitely not in the book. <laughs> no, but I love the movie. I love the movie, too. I wish the book was like the movie. You, you told me that you come back to the movie every couple of years. I do. It's, again, it's, it's, the, it's the, I miss the rhythm of life in Italy and its beauty. And it, it, it is, it's just like a, moving postcard for Italy, really. Mm-hmm. It's a moving advertisement. And Italy, speaking of sexist places and retrograde thoughts, yeah, yeah. Woo, um, that's a peach. Um, that's why I can't live there, but maybe someday I'll be rich enough just to get a summer house there. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to start writing Under the Tuscan Night and try to do a series like that, Francis. And get rich <laughs> like you, Francis. <laughs> um, you know what you have to do? Hmm. You have to re-record the audiobook because I thought this book would go quicker if I got it on an audiobook. Oh, God. Frances Mays has a terrible voice. It's her own voice? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I feel so mean at this poor woman. She's in her 70s. She's never going to listen to this. But she, I, I thought because she's Southern, she'd have this beautiful... like Lilting she, Southern accent? Yeah, but it's kind of like... That's in the southern accent where she has like a kind of like something stuck in her throat. Like I have a really yes. hard oh, the, the oh, heat no. in the summer. It's very bad. Oh my god! I can't <laughs> believe you got through it. Well, you mostly got through it. <coughs> Excuse me. That way, that's t- I've tried. Um, I can only listen to an audiobook if I like the person's voice. Yeah, I, I cannot. Which is why you need to re-record this audiobook. Oh, that would be well. God, the fee would have to be large. The fee would. Oh so. God, to to struggle through that one. Yes. But uh, my audiobook was voted Audible's top 10 of the year last year, what? which is really exciting. Yeah. Good for you, man. And thanks. Yeah. I, uh, I read it myself and I don't have a voice, <laughs> at least not so far. Yeah. And uh, I really, that was an interesting, it was really meta. Did you record your own audiobook? No, but actually I really just sold the audiobook right, so we're still discussing uh, that. Yeah. You have um, a nice voice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Aww. Rose, you're so nice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not the scary thing they portray me to be. That's May. I was I was quaking in my boots today. A lot of people do. They're quite scared to meet me, yeah. and it, it makes me laugh because I'm. I I don't know what I am, but I know what I'm not. I feel I'm only like... scary about I think injustice and things that make me mad, which I think should make everybody mad. 
I think the worst way to get to know someone in general is when they're backed into a corner. And I feel like I, all you, of you, last get, year you back get backed into a corner. corner. That's your, like, yeah. And and it was a brutal year. It was it was a brutal couple of years. Hell, it was a brutal life. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. But <laughs> uh, I had a lot of adventures in between the brutality. But it was, yeah, the last two years were extraordinarily difficult to survive. And I'm, I'm in a good place now. That's It's kind of a healing place. And it's good to be out of the line of fire. Yeah. Um, and I hope my book gets the fair shake that it deserves because – it's not about me too. It's about a life. But it's also, you know, I break the fourth wall. I speak directly to the reader. I wanted to have a conversation with the reader. And it's a trope that I took from movies when they turn and they speak directly to the camera and to the audience. So mm-hmm. I, I was like, I just crisscrossed that and put it in my book. And I go between, you know, the autobiographical, autobiographical elements and um, I suppose a manifesto of sorts, which makes it sound like some Karl Marxian thing, but it's not. It's it's positing theories and thoughts and, and kind of revealing, like you talked about Charmed and Jawbreaker, and I talk about what it's like behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I talk about what, you know, how it really compares the cult I grew up in to the cult of Hollywood and how it affects people's mind in ways they're not aware of, using my own stories as examples. So with that, that cult idea is fascinating to me because do you feel like when you're when you're that young and you're made to identify the tenets of what a damaging ideological sort of prison is it makes you very good at recognizing damaging ideological prisons completely and i it took me a while to realize that was what i was in in hollywood and then once i came to it i couldn't unsee it and then i started seeing you know everyone freaks out on scientology or things like that and i just think but society is a cult you know yeah. what I mean? It's if you're deep into any specific thing, it's kind of a cult-like thing. And also just gender is a cult. You know, that is such a cult of thought. And again, when I came to America, I, I landed on a Navy base and uh, a military base. And that was super cult-like. Mm-hmm. And again, everyone was telling me how sorry they were for me. And I I thought, even though there were a lot of unpleasantries going on, to put it mildly, Overall, the freedom of mind that I had and the difference in how I grew up, I think, gives me kind of a superpower that others don't have. Mm -hmm. To be raised without the indoctrination of what you are as a girl or what you are as a man is hugely beneficial to living a free life. And it puts me at odds with most of the world. Yeah. Because they have been raised in a way – it's a more watered-down version of what I got. Mm-hmm. So they don't really realize that they're kind of in a cult-like structure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And what's interesting to me is women don't generally talk about their own beauty. And if they do, it's in a very embarrassed way. Right. And I think maybe because of the way you were raised, you talk about it as like it's a separate thing, like me. something you inherited, like or something. It like, had absolutely nothing. Like, to yeah, do something with that me. exists outside of you, you know, right. rather than a part of who you are. I used to stare in the mirror and try to. I was like, "That's what a nose is." Yeah. This is what that is. This is. It, it's it's strange to say, but you know when you you have the flu or something and you haven't talked for three days or looked in the mirror and then you mm-hmm. go and you're like, ah. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of always how it was. I would look in the mirror and be like, ah, who is that? You know, and the outside shell was something that was so at odds with how my mind worked. It set up this kind of collision course um, where I was lauded for my face and body but had no relation to it. Yeah. Which in some ways I think – is better because you're not as attached to the external. But to live a life where you're one of the most, at one point, photographed people on the planet and and vaunted for beauty that you don't really relate to in any way other than the fact that it seemed to make me a target for every creep that wanted to touch me, mm. you know, um, and a lot of hatred from women, a lot. Yeah. I went to uh, 10 different schools in 11 years and once I came to the States and moved around a lot. And um, I also write about this in my book. But one of the things that helped me was uh, one of the first places I went was a state called Oregon. And it's filled with rednecks. And everyone thinks Portland is like this PC place. And I guess it is. It's all white people that are like, we're tolerant of everybody. <laughs> if someone told me they were tolerant of me, I would probably want to punch them in the nose. I find that. It's like, oh, be, how big of you? How big of you? <laughs> oh, ain't that nice. And But the rest of the state is quite redneck. It's mm-hmm. quite like trucks that are big wheels and gun racks in the back with the gun just taking it around during the day. And, and, and it was a, quite a vicious place for me. And every day they would throw things at me out of their car when I was walking home or harass me at school. You're the ugliest thing i ever seen. And I would say, saw. You saw me. You didn't see me. If you're going to insult me, do it in proper English. But then like overnight, I went to another state called Colorado, which is in the mountains in the west. And there immediately I was very popular and and lauded for my beauty. And I thought, well, that's stupid. Neither of these people know me, mm. the, the mean ones nor the nice ones. Obviously, you'd rather people be nice to you because it seems an easier life. But it, it helped me later on in Hollywood that my head didn't get turned by accolades or and, – and beauty, it's fleeting. Mm. You know, it's a fleeting thing. How does an attitude like that to your own beauty – uh, change because again, like, As you I get think older. I think about Italy and I think about all these things about like this is this culture that like you know oh, just like in even in this book oh a tomato that is beautiful or a tomato <laughs> um, and and just like how 
how does that change your relationship to objective of finding beauty in things, you know? I find beauty more in objects, design, and and even ugliness. I think there's a lot of beauty in, in ugly buildings or, or industrial parks or things like that. I like abstract beauty a lot. And I, I think beauty is a glorious thing. I don't – I kind of sometimes feel sorry for people that are really beautiful because – I don't want to say beauty is a curse, but it's a it's a heavy mantle to wear. Mm-hmm. And imagine people, and and you're beautiful. You're oh. you're an extremely pretty woman. Thank you, Rose McGowan. You're welcome. <laughs> and and so many people. There's beauty in 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 most people, of course. But then there are the ones you know, like the supermodels or whatever that are just in another whatever categories are. I don't know. It's societal thinking. It's again. It's it's the one percent, right? It's the 1%, but when beauty fades, it it does a job on your mind, but in a way, it's really freeing. You know, I still, I think I'm attractive. um, You're very very pretty, again. Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, But it's not like this thing where I'm in a room and people are making a beeline or the men are making a beeline to try to trap me. Mm. And so I always felt really hunted. And it... um, And that was part of your decision to cut your hair short, yeah? Yes. It was just a radical rejection of what I was supposed to be. I also talk in my book about how I was directly told by a female agent. A lot of the females in Hollywood can do a lot of damage. Yeah. And she said, uh, you have to have long hair. Otherwise, the men in Hollywood won't want to fuck you. If they don't want to fuck you, they're not going to hire you. And It's kind of like lunatics being allowed to run the asylum a and, little bit. And it like... really is there. And it's a closed society. It's one that most people don't know anything about. And nobody really in Hollywood has gone up against it. Not like I have. No. Successfully. I. At what point did you assume that responsibility in your head? It was annoying because I kept waiting for somebody else to do it. And I was like, God damn it, nobody's coming along. I have to do this. How annoying. And I knew it was going to be like the fight of my life because the power brokers, the machine, they will shut you down. They will do every single thing they can. I mean, I endured in the last year having ex-Massad infiltrate my life. There was a million-dollar bounty on my book, and 125 pages were stolen from it before it was published by my rapist. Jesus. Yeah, it was an intense, intense time. And and it had been turned out in The New Yorker, Ronan Farrow uncovered that I was on this hit list for the last 20 years because I, refu- I, I went up against him after the assault and was blacklisted in the industry. And so the reason I was on Charmed was because I couldn't get a job in movies. Right. And, and that, that was pre sort of the whole TV being this amazing place for actresses, which we think of it now. It was just before that. Yeah. yeah. It was just before that. And maybe we paved the way. We were the longest-running uh, female-led TV show in history. Yeah. And really? Yeah. Eight wow. Years. It was on for eight years, and I was on it for five long years. And uh, where, again, you know, because I, – but I had been on a very different trajectory. But after the assault and blacklisting and, um, you know, so Ronan Farrow uncovered that the, the bad guy bought off – journalist all over the world and would have a hit list that he would give them. He would buy, say, a story that they wrote and say, I'm going to turn this into a movie. But instead, mm-hmm. he would, you know, string them along and give them a hit list. Anytime this person appears in the press or appears, you know, 
decimate them, go after them. So I was always painted as crazy, imbalanced, uh, a druggie, all these things that had nothing to do with me and everything to do with somebody doing, you know, using that same old way to discredit women to keep them from ever being heard because I was dangerous because I'd never signed an NDA. I never signed a confidentiality agreement. I refused. Right. It's so in- it's been really interesting just listening to you talk and how much your body language even changes when you talk about these things. I can literally see you becoming like your your, your shoulders getting straighter and everything. And, and it's, it's like going to war. It is like, but you're clearly like a very like I'm a very tender and thoughtful person. Yeah, I am. It's hard. It it um it takes a lot out of me. It's it's a brutal experience, and I I really. And it, it does. It makes me tear up every time I think about it just because, I mean, I swear to God, last couple of years my brain came close to snapping. And it was on the heels of finishing the book, you know. And at my book launch in uh, New York, he hired a fake protester to come and uh, verbally assault me in the most disgusting way and got in a verbal altercation with this person. And it was all set up. And by the time I left the building um, – my rapist had uh, a full transcript of the exchange, and it was in Huffington Post Queer, and it was just brutal. It was it was a brutal, brutal time. You know, um, I remember going on Christiana Amanpour on CNN, who I'd always respected, who was super misogynist and just came for me. And people would just come for me in a way that I was like, "Do you understand who you're talking to?" Do you understand that you're talking to a victim and a survivor? Do you understand that there's trauma? What do you what do you do with the fact that somebody will treat your rape like it's entertainment? It's it's uh, and I'm really sorry you were treated oh, okay. that way. Thank you. Yeah, um, you know, part of it was because I'd always been treated so nastily by the paid off press, and so I was always kind of written off as this, you know, fringe kook character, which. I mean, I'm sure I can be kooky, but I wouldn't describe myself that way. And so they felt like it was okay. It was open season. And uh, it's it's really, you know, kind of an epic story of a woman going up against the machine every goddamn day. Every day I had to fight. And coming off my book, which was hard to write. It was really hard, you know. I was so angry at my father while I wrote it because I had to revisit a lot of dark places. And I wouldn't visit his grave while I was writing it. But afterwards, after it came out, there's something about the publication of a book. You're free of it then. But it was still, it was, the publication date was so soon after I finished it that I hadn't had time to process. And I was still in kind of a traumatized place when I went into the year and a half battle. But, you know, I set up those articles, the original ones, um, I mean, the, the backstory is, is intense, and I'll write about that someday. I started to write about it, and it started just freaking me out too much. So I think, like, it's still too raw. Mm-hmm. And I wish I didn't cry. I wish I was stronger. I think it's the fact that you do cry but it's makes me respect that strength so much more. Because I, I guess I've always looked at your career and your activism as being, oh, she must be different to me. She must not feel bad about herself, you know? No, I do. And the fact that you that you clearly do and and you know, it's it's honestly it's very moving just 
literally watching tears come out of your eyes right now, <laughs> which I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, Chicklet. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Let's go back to cherries and moving boulders and Frances Mays, the least emotional person on the planet. She should, yeah, she should get involved, clearly. Oh, my God, could you imagine her interviewing me? That would go well. Rose McGowan, have you ever eaten a peach in the Italian sun? No. Well, yes, actually, I have Frances. Frances. No. I love those kind of voices. Oh, oh my God. I can't believe you had to go through an audiobook. I, I literally God listened to 25 you. minutes and then I was like, no, we're in the book. This will be no matter I, yeah. how slow the book is. I tried to get through um, Women Who Run With the Wolves, an audiobook, and it was the author's voice. And it was kind of this. I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, but I will plug my audiobook because it's actually great. And I put I have an album coming out in the late summer. A, a musical album? Music album. Oh great. Because I sang for a long time on soundtracks and things like that. But I decided to make my own. And I did it. I produced and um, wrote uh, the songs and did all that while writing the book. It was kind of my saving it was kind of how I say, stayed sane throughout the writing of it. Yeah. And because it was it's such a positive and, and quite spiritual um, album. And where was I going with this? Anyway. We're, I think we were talking generally about plugging. Oh, plugging. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's what it is. In the audiobook, um, I start it and end it with two of my songs. It's compressed, oh, so the sound quality isn't awesome, but you can get a gist of it, and it puts you in a mood for going, you know, the album's called Planet Nine, and when I was 10, when I came to America, I invented my own planet for myself to live on because the one I was on was too scary and traumatizing. And I used to wonder what sound frequencies would be on this planet and what, you know, the furniture would look like. And so I would spend all day in school just designing it in my head because school was not particularly challenging for me. Mm-hmm. When you say that, do you mean that, like, you were effortlessly straight A or that you literally couldn't focus and you would just be doing your no, own thing? No, I was bored. Yeah. Uh, I was bored. There were some teachers that were okay uh, in some places. My favorite was a guy named Mr. Hand who later got arrested for child molestation. No. So there's that. Mr. Nominative Hand. determinism. Yeah. I think he must have liked boys because he left me alone. I'm not saying that, you know, I would be a target. <laughs> Wait. What? You don't want to molest me? <laughs> Everyone's, I'm so insulted. Everyone's thought that on some Gallows level, humor. Though, right? Gallows like, humor. I mean, man, I'm Irish. Like, I have people have been. My dad said that to me like a couple of years ago. He was like, "Yeah, a couple of boys in my class, but never me." Yeah, it's like if you're like, I didn't get picked to go to the dance. That would traumatize me for the rest of my life. What? <laughs> what? What was wrong with me? Like, I was talking to um, uh, an author the other day, Kristen Rupenian, who wrote Cat Person. Okay. And she talked a lot about how when she was a kid, she was obsessed with um, Ted Bundy and how she saw pictures of all of his victims and they were all so beautiful and she felt so ugly and she just wanted to be, she fantasized about sort of being a victim. That's so interesting. Right? That's so interesting. It's weird. I feel like um, women fixate on serial killers because we grow up thinking, well. They're going to get me. Yeah, yeah. It's when gonna... in fact, it's really the monster next door. Right? Yeah. Woof. I think women are taught so much, and I've noticed girls especially, are taught to be polite and non-threatening. Yeah. And I think that leads us... Uh, I directed a movie called Dawn. Uh, I've a, seen it. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm really proud of that three years ago. And it it is kind of a case study of what happens when we send girls out in the world to be polite and what happens when they meet a predator. Because we're not designed, as scared as we are of serial killers 
or, you know, something like that or the rapist, you know, the big baddie. It's the daily interaction of politeness that chips away at our strength in a moment of danger. And it's that thing of, um, you know, when you feel like somebody's like following you home at night and being like, boy, am I going to feel silly when I get home safely? You know, and like chiding yourself or even feeling threatened at all. Right. But the reality is, is people are apex predators and we are not them. Yeah. I would rather I came to the point where I I would rather be considered rude and have somebody. So many women are afraid of somebody being like, you're a fucking bitch. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you survive that if someone says it to you? My guess is yes. Can you survive what, you know, the mental manipulation that would come before somebody would say that to you? Uh, Ultimately, maybe not. No. God, we've gotten we've, we've gotten far from the. <laughs> we've gotten far from under the Tuscan sun, Francis Mays. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think Francis would probably even like this conversation. I think it might be too much for her. No, she. I think she's pretty conservative. Like there's, she's she's pretty colonial lady. I think we don't even know what subject she teaches at school. She goes to back I to a, presume I'm, creative writing. Oh. I was like, what are you teaching? <laughs> but honestly, gun to my head, I'm not. I couldn't even swear. But it's not that creative. So no. how can I don't think. No offense, Francis. I'd want you to be my teacher, but you can cook for me anytime. Any any bloody time. Um, I I also wanted to defend um, the fact that I didn't let you talk about Jane Eyre, um, which was only because huh? I think that would have been. Don't you think that's chicklet? Well, it's chicks and it's literary. In in a way, I think it's like the grandmother of like all women's fiction. In that, like we actually had a guest on who said that all women's fiction comes from um, Jane Austen, the, Bron- the Brontes, sisters. or um, George Eliot, okay. and like everything comes from there. Like that um, makes sense. Yeah, and like I think you can draw a straight line between like Gone Girl and yeah, like things that the Bronte sisters did. It's that sort of um, making those inner anxieties and inner feelings about like whether someone is trustworthy or not but writing it so large in this big opera you know and so I love defend Jane yourself Eyre. why did you not let me choose because that? I was like it's too highbrow it's too it is yeah because I checked the, the whole idea with Chicklet is that it's incredibly approachable you sort of just like breeze through it and then you're done or whatever um, and I kind of wish that I had let you talk about Jane Eyre. I, because I, I love Jane Eyre. I, love I just Jane thought Eyre. it was too highbrow. So, oh, I think it's so seminal. I want to do. Did you ever read Rebecca? Yeah, I love it. It's my favorite book. I've actually been shouted at for bringing it up too much on this podcast. <laughs> well, it's a great book. But don't you think it would be interesting to cross um, Jane Eyre, Mrs. Rochester, and yeah. have her meet Mrs. Danvers, the evil lady Ooh, from Rebecca? I yeah. always thought those two women in those books got such a bad rap. And yeah. I think their psychology would be fascinating to explore. I mean, I, I, I kind of wish that we did talk about Jane Eyre, but I'm also kind of psyched that we just trashed this book for an hour. I know. It's got to be unusual for this podcast, isn't it's, it? It's a first, yeah. I'm glad to be the first. <laughs> the first to just trash something. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to outright trash? Brown is such a bitch. She, <laughs> she picked on this 70-year-old Southern writer lady. If there's anyone to pick on, it's a 70-year-old. Come on. <laughs> A rich 70-year-old. Not that I'm resentful or anything. Another annoying thing about the book is that she always <laughs> refers to her daughter, who I think is called, like, Christine. She just she refers to her as my adult daughter <laughs> throughout the book. Yeah, that's She's like, true. my adult daughter is coming for the summer. <laughs> like, my adult daughter is here for Christmas. It's like, just name her and tell us anything about anything. her. It's very st- – I'm, I'm quite fascinated by why this became a bestseller. That Me too. I don't understand. Is there something wrong? What am I missing? Do you know? Um, I, and I, I actually read um, a long article. Is it because people hate their lives so much somewhere that you they know, just fantasize about another land? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's about changing your life in midlife. 
Yes, I think, but she doesn't give any evidence really of changing it other than buying a summer house. And talking to some Italians, mostly Where, who work for her. in the movie, she does change her life in midlife. The movie is so affecting because you feel like this is someone who legitimately learns to live their life outside of this paradigm that was created for feet. women. Yeah, and like, and the whole, there's this beautiful romance that's like so sexy and then it, it ends up like petering off into nothing. Right. In a very like distinct way. With the hot Italian. With the very hot Italian. Yeah. Is there, can I, can I get a few books that you genuinely love so people don't think that you're a hater who picks on old Southern women? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to think that about me, that's okay. <laughs> um, they're probably racist too. Just kidding. <laughs> If they're from the South. Um, just kidding. Just uh, kidding. Just kidding. Uh, what, I like Jojo Moyles. I met her <gasps> at a literary salon, and she is the nicest, coolest woman. I really liked her. We're doing her for the next episode. Or we're doing she's her quite coming soon. On? Um, I don't know if she's coming on, but somebody's doing one of her books. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah, she's a wonderful woman and a really prolific writer. So I'm she's like, chiclet writer. She, that's that's, that's chiclet. chiclet. Yeah. Right. That's what someone told me recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marion Keynes also a chiclet writer. We have her on as well. We had her as a guest. Look at you, Fancy. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm just bragging at you I now. Have to say, you love chiclet. You're a fan of this genre. I guess so. Uh, <laughs> I like Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Is that chiclet? Or is that a thriller? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's in the Cross. Oeuvre. Yeah. But I have to say, I read a lot of classics. Mm-hmm. And um, I will try to get more into chiclet. So if I ever come on here again, I have more to talk about that's positive. But it's been so lovely talking to it's you. It's been I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank I've you really so much it. for coming on. Is there we've plugged a lot, but is there anything else you want to mention Your before book. we sign off? Tell me the title of it again. It's called Promising Young Women. Promising Young Women, and I'm going to read it. And um to actually to listeners, the uh, paperback is out March 9th. So Oh, mine's coming out I think March seventh or eighth. Oh yeah. both our books are Pisces. And they're both orange. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Hey. Go us. Go hey. us. All right, thank you so much, Rose, for coming on. Thank you so much. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell. Hi listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to our interview with Rose McGowan. This is just a quick note here to say for legal reasons that currently Harvey Weinstein denies all allegations made against him. Bye. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.